We continue now our series in Luke's Gospel. Luke, the ninth chapter. We began our series in Luke last October. Here it is, October, and we've come to the ninth chapter. And we will read together the first 17 verses. Will you pray with me? Our Father, here we have gathered as your people, sitting under the authority of your word desirous of fellowshipping with you, communing with you through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, desiring to submit completely thought, word, and deed to the inerrant word of God. And yet, even as Christians justified by faith and accepted completely in the merit of Christ through his blood and righteousness, yet we are morally still sinners. And we struggle to obey, even though the spirit within us has caused us to long for it daily. Grow us in grace. Help us to hear the word read and then proclaimed as it is a message from God. Work within us that through the frail instrumentality of this minister who opens and expounds the word, that our hearts may be moved to know you until long to fellowship with you and to love those things that are in accord with your nature and to hate those things that are out of accord with your nature and give to us in the midst of our joy and our salvation also a deep seriousness about our faith and about worship of your name and the knowledge that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And Father, for those who are gathered here today who do not know Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts, that they may be drawn out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of your own dear Son. Will you hear our prayer? Indeed, we know you will, for we offer it not in ourselves, but through Christ, our mediator, the only redeemer of God's elect. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you please take your copy of God's Word as we stand reading, beginning in verse 1 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. This is the Word of the Lord. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, 
But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he stood up to heaven, looked up to heaven, and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Over these past weeks, we have seen a series of miracles performed by our Lord Jesus Christ that sets before us his grand and great sovereign authority. We have seen the wind and the waves obey his voice. The demons tremble before him, and even the dead come to life as a response to his gentle but sovereign command. And now we see another part of the answer to the question, who is this? The one we see in this passage today is the one with authority to provide for his people. It all hangs together in what we have read this morning. And the first thing we see together is that Jesus' authority is shared. Jesus' authority is shared, or perhaps you would prefer the word delegated. He shares his authority. He extends the message. In verse 1, we are told he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And so through his representatives, the 12 who are called in verse 10, the apostles, Jesus is training these men to provide for the preaching of the kingdom of God when his physical presence will no longer be with them. This is a kind of internship, if you will. He sends them out in twos, and he tells them to take very little with them, but he gives to them, bestows upon them the authority to preach the kingdom and to heal diseases. They are dependent upon him for authority. They are dependent upon him for provision, and he is the one who provides both. He provides also the authoritative message, for the message that they preach is the message of the kingdom. And you will recall that we have seen the kingdom means God's saving rule has begun because Christ has come. The signs of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel, miracles, the casting out of demons, forgiveness of sins. The demand of the kingdom is cosmic restoration, repentance, faith, and total commitment. 
Entry into the kingdom has nothing to do with the passing of any test, being good enough, earning God's favor. Let the good news fill your soul. The message of the kingdom is it is all of grace from first to last. But along with that authoritative message, he also gave them an authoritative method. And that method is the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Now, I could say a good deal about this, as you know, about the place of preaching in the life of the church and in the evangelism that God has called upon us to proclaim in the world. Recently, I was reading a certain group of emergent church leaders, as they call themselves, who are now suggesting that we no longer have authoritative preaching, but rather we have conversations. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. The importance of preaching as a means of grace might easily be gathered from this passage, even if it stood alone. But it is but one instance among many of the high value which the Bible everywhere sets upon preaching. It is, in fact, God's chosen instrument for doing good to souls. By it, sinners are converted, inquirers led on, and saints built up. A preaching ministry is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of a visible church. The pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won, and no church has ever done much for the advancement of true religion in which the pulpit has been neglected. Would we know whether a minister is a truly apostolical man? If he is, he will give the best of his attention to his sermons. He will labor and pray to make his preaching effective, and he will tell his congregation that he looks to preaching for the chief results on souls. The minister who exalts the sacraments or forms of the church above preaching may be a zealous, earnest, conscientious, and respectable minister, but his zeal is not according to knowledge. He is not a follower of the apostles. And so, if there is any one thing about these men, these apostles sent out by twos that continues in the church today, just read the pastoral epistles. It is the place of the preaching of the Word of God in the church and in the world. So, Jesus' authority is shared, delegated, and the apostles go out preaching. But notice also that Jesus' authority is rejected. Not by everyone, of course. God has his people, and by sovereign grace, he will draw them unto himself. But often, the word of the Lord, the authority of Christ, is rejected. And so we read in verse 5, Jesus says to them, Whatever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so he let them know as they go, there will be those people who will not receive your message. Pious Jews remove the dust from heathen lands before re-entering into Jewish territory. When Jesus says to the twelve that they are to shake the dust from their feet, he is bringing that to mind. The twelve declare the place that rejects the gospel of the kingdom as heathen. And when in verse 5 he says, you do this as a testimony against them, he is giving to them the awesome reality of the knowledge that it will be evidence against those who reject the gospel on the final judgment. Those who have heard the gospel 
You've heard the gospel, but you've not believed the gospel. The gospel was preached and you did not receive it. You did not accept it. You did not trust in Christ. The gospel was openly preached, freely offered to you. And yet because of the hardness of your heart, you did not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be a testimony against those who do not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, surely you can see the relevance of this for the church today. Can you not? Yes? We, as a church, represent Christ and his message to the world. There are those who are called to minister the gospel publicly. The servant is not greater than his master. And if you were to compare Matthew chapters 9 and 10 with what is here, dealing with the same theme, the same subject matter, you would see that Jesus is saying that the church is to expect this until the end of the age. We say to the world, God's word is authoritative. Unless a sinner built his life on his authority, he cannot be saved. Bow to the sovereign authority of Christ. And that word is often rejected. And in some places, this will mean for the Christian imprisonment, sometimes death. For us, it may mean ostracism or exclusion or accusations of intolerance or being called unloving. A nurse may lose her job for being faithful to Christ. A business person lose his prestige or mobility. But we must focus on those things that are unseen and eternal. Mark it down, people of God. Rejection was common to our Lord and to his church. Just count on it. Our theology is the theology of the cross. And being a Christian involves consequences that are often painful. The glory of God makes the suffering worth it. But the gospel will be proclaimed, and many will receive it, and many will not. And of course we see this theme of rejection as the text goes on and speaks to us of Herod the king. You see, in verses 7 through 9, he wonders who this is of whom he is hearing, He's hearing undoubtedly of the preaching of the apostles and the miracles that they do in the name of Jesus. He's hearing about Christ, and he's wondering, who is this person? The preaching of the apostles draw the attention of Herod, and that's always the goal. The attention goes to Christ, not to us. But he has, Herod has, already rejected the authority of Christ by rejecting the authority of Christ in the preaching of John the Baptist. Christ may well be rejected in his messengers. The apostles were delegates of Christ's word and work and power, and they have rejected. He has rejected. Herod has rejected Christ already, and he is disturbed in his guilty conscience. Herod feared John had risen from the dead because in Jewish thought, resurrection is the prelude to judgment. You'll recall Herodias was the wife of Antipas, half-brother Philip, was in fact his niece. Leviticus 18 forbade their marriage, and John said so plainly. Herodias looked for an opportunity to destroy John the Baptist. The opportune time had come. Herod's birthday, Salome, her daughter, danced. He said, oh, up to half my kingdom will I give you for this dance that you're doing before us. Here's what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver charger, and there you see a clash of kingdoms. 
R.T. France in his commentary on Mark says, Herod's wanton execution of Jesus' predecessor and associate is a sign of what the mission of the kingdom of God can expect from the kingdoms of this world. What can we expect from the kingdoms of this world as we proclaim the kingdom of God, the saving rule of Christ? We can expect antithesis, conflict. Rejection was essential to John's ministry, was essential to Jesus' ministry, and if we are faithful, must, must be essential to our ministry as well. Because as Christians, we are called never to be reconciled to this sinful world system. We sing it, don't we? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help us on to God? And of course, the answer is no. And so let me say, you out there who are future leaders of Covenant Presbyterian Church, we're about to have a potential officer's training class. Some of you young men will be the future elders of this church, others deacons, others leaders. You young men and women will be leaders in all sorts of ways in this congregation, in Sunday schools and women's ministries. I ask you this, you have a choice. You have a choice between seeking a ministry that is a success by the world's measure, toning down grace, toning down the lordship of Christ, toning down God-centeredness in worship and life, or you can have a ministry that the world regards as significant. What do you seek for yourself, for your children, the world's values or kingdom values? Do we teach our children that God's way is directly contrary to the way of this world system, that it is the way of humility, it is the way of service, it is the way of love, it is the way of worship, it is the way of holiness? And do we teach our children the way of the cross will always in this world until Christ comes again? It will always be the way of misunderstanding. For the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. The gospel then will always be the way of scandal and the way of offense if we are preaching it and living it as we should. J. Gresham Machen is a name that's known by most of us in this congregation, this great New Testament scholar, Presbyterian in Old Princeton. Machen, the early church, he said in in an article that he wrote, the early church had three characteristics. He said the early church was radically doctrinal, that is to say, creedal. It was radically intolerant, that is to say, squarely opposed to the spirit of the age, preaching the exclusivity of the gospel that there is only one Savior and one Redeemer. And the early church was radically ethical. We are called to live for the glory of God, no sham lives as Christians. Radically doctrinal, radically intolerant radically ethical. When the church is focused upon the gospel, she is in her weakness powerful. When the church is focused on power and influence and manipulation, in her power she is weak and in danger of becoming no church at all. Just read the letters to the churches in the book of revelation. But Herod, Herod, this man of the world, Herod had everything that a man could want from a worldly point of view. 
Herod, despite his opportunities, went to hell. And someone here needs to take notice that Herod's conscience troubled him. And he knew that he had done wrong. And he was self-condemned. But Herod never came to God for forgiveness. And someone here today needs to hear that there is only one provision for a troubled conscience. And that one provision is the blood of Jesus Christ. So, the apostles are sent out. They preach a message received by some, rejected by others. Herod rejected the message. And then the apostles, according to verse 10, come back and they report to Jesus. And Jesus would take them off for some rest to Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And what a lesson we have already learned. There indeed will be rejection. Ministry will be hard. But the question is, can Jesus, will Jesus provide for his church? Which leads us to the third thing we see in this text. Jesus' authority to provide. His authority was shared. Authority rejected. But now we see his authority to provide. We are told in verse 10 that a large crowd gathers. Jesus welcomed them, it says, because he is a welcoming Savior. And he preached the kingdom. He healed the sick. But Jesus worked so hard and ministered so long, the time from the apostles' perspective got away from them. How would all these people eat? Where would they stay? How would they be provided for? And a seemingly impossible problem arises as we read in verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So here they are. Five thousand men, we are told. No food, nowhere to stay. The disciples suggest sending them away. And even though we read of 5,000 men, we don't know how many women were there. We don't know how many children were there. And in verse 13, we read, the disciples cannot meet the need. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. So Jesus says, okay, I see the problem. 5,000 people, you go fix it. You go do it. You go do it. You go and minister to the crowd. You go and you minister to the multitude. How could they do that? Perhaps we're meant to think of Numbers 11 where Moses said, where can I get meat for all these people? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? To feed them would be expensive and hard to do. And in the end, what do they have? Five loaves and two fish for ministry. Jesus alone can provide. Jesus alone. So Jesus says, have the men sit in groups of about 50. Now, if you were to compare Mark's gospel, we're preaching Luke. I try to emphasize what Luke emphasizes, but it's good to think about these other places as well. In Mark's gospel, 
In the Greek New Testament, he uses language that indicates that in their oriental dress, the groups there in the grass looked like patches of flowers. It must have been a beautiful thing to see. So there they are in groups of about 50. And two Old Testament narratives immediately would come to mind as Jesus performs this miracle. The one is the passage that our intern, Adam McNeil, read to us from 2 Kings 4 this morning. This feeding of the 5,000 is a feeding miracle of greater dimensions than Elisha's, but also it would bring to mind manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the greater than Moses who supplies the manna for the new covenant people of God. And Jesus, he says, you go do it. Well, we can't do it. Jesus can do it. And Jesus feeds the crowd. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. He breaks the food, and then he allows them to distribute. He provides for ministry, and then the disciples minister out of his rich provision. They minister through his provision. They minister through his authority. They minister through his power. And if we truly minister the gospel, the only one who can provide is Christ. And we have nothing but what is given to us to minister. You know, Bach in his commentary on Luke gives a long list um, of the links to which unbelief will go in trying to understand this text. Let me mention some of them to you. I think it's instructive. Uh, There are commentators who say this is just Jesus' example of sharing that leads others to share They had food out there, and they just began to share it. Another commentator actually says that wealthy ladies supplied the need of all the people out there. Well, there's no mention of wealthy ladies anywhere in the text. There's nothing like that here. Others have said Jesus broke the food into tiny little pieces. They didn't really have a lot to eat, but everyone had enough when they just had a little morsel. Another one says Jesus hypnotized the crowd into believing that they were filled. (laughs) Listen, either you believe the word of God or you do not. God's word is true. Eyewitnesses have recorded a miracle of Jesus Christ. And it is a miracle that is recorded not only in the synoptic gospels, but also in John. It is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John. How did it happen? That is to say, what would it have looked like as he performed this miracle? I think we actually have a hint of this. When it says that he broke the bread, he broke the bread, that's an aorist tense. In other words, what you have there is a snapshot. But when it says that he gave, you see there in verse 16, look at it again. He broke the loaves, that's the aorist, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. That's an imperfect which is a sort of moving picture. It's a line, not a dot. You're seeing here an ongoing act. So he break the bread, but the imperfect means that as he gave, he just kept on giving. 
the food is multiplying as he hands it to the apostles right out of his hands. What a God we have. What a Christ we serve. He just continued to give. The food multiplying right out of his hands. The same Jesus who turned the water into wine. And John 2 is now providing for the 5,000 plus. And all kinds of Old Testament promises come to mind. You remember Psalm 81:16, but he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Psalm 132:15, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Do you know the verse, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it? Yes, he keeps his promises to his people to provide. And in Exodus 16, when the manna came from heaven, it was just enough. But here there are leftovers, a greater than an exodus has taken place here. Because verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. All are filled. Large baskets, 12 of them, one for each of the apostles undoubtedly to continue ministry or certainly to make a point. Yes, I can provide for your ministry. Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. Psalm 105, 40, they asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. This is Messiah providing for his people in the messianic kingdom. So what does all of this mean? What is the significance of this miracle? That's the fourth thing for you note keepers. The fourth thing, what is the significance of this miracle? Well, one significance is that it is fulfillment. The Lord who gives us our daily bread is the longed for Messiah, the one who gives greater manna than Moses. Explicitly, he says so in John 6, when we have this miracle recorded. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It is fulfillment. He actually is not only the greater than Moses, he's the manna itself from heaven, the greater than manna. He's the fulfillment. But also, there is a present focus that we are to understand. We have present communion with the Lord. The early church could not fail to see in this a hint of the Lord's Supper. The sequence of verbs, took, blessed, broke, gave. Mark and John make this more clear than Luke. But the fellowship meal in the wilderness points to the greater fellowship symbolized in the Eucharist. And surely you see, as we consider this present focus, surely you see the miracle points to the giver of the bread, the giver, that we do not live for earthly bread. Paul Tripp, in a wedding meditation, said, people who live for earthly bread will one day eat one another up because it can never satisfy You will be a parasite on your mate, and you will suck the blood from your mate. 
yet he or she will never, ever, ever, ever give you enough. There's only one bread. It is Jesus. And life is found in feeding on him by faith. That's the present focus to which we are called. But then also there's a future hope. Because the Jews thought of the coming Messiah with this grand picture of a messianic feast. You read about it in Isaiah and other places. The banquet that awaits us at the end of time, every believer in the Lord Jesus. Believer, your life in a fallen world is not permanent. Our communion services are unfinished meals. We look forward to the day when we will eat and drink the fruit of the vine with Jesus in the consummated kingdom. Oh, imagine it, unhindered, unending, undiminished communion with our Lord. The old wine given way to the new. The old order of things will have passed away. There will be a new enjoyment of which the Lord's Supper is now a real hint, but a hint nonetheless. No after effect of sin will be known or felt in that day. What then does this miracle mean? It is fulfillment, it has a present focus, and it points to a future hope. Can the Lord provide for us? Can he provide for his people even when the world hates the gospel and hates Christ and hates believers? Yes, 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 because you see what he provides What he provides is himself. We see his unique authority, his transcendent greatness, his creative power, and his full deity. And ultimately, he is saying when he feeds the 5,000 and saying to us in this text, Don't you see? I am this bread, I am the provider. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there will be persecution. Yes, there's a whole world to feed to which to take the gospel. But the day would come when our risen Lord, just before his ascension, would say to his church, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go and preach the gospel. Because I have the authority to provide Yes, he can provide. Yes, he does provide. But for some of us here, there's a bigger question. And that question is, for what do you hunger? For whom do you long? What is the deep hunger of your heart? What do you most want? What fills your desires? When you do not get what you want, how do you react? Do you fret? Do you worry? Are you angry? Do you say, God, can't you see I need this? And we question his love. You know the words of Habakkuk? Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So fill in the blank. Though my children are rebellious, 
though my spouse leaves me, uh, though my circumstances are heavy, though there is great persecution of the church, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior because he is the only one, the only one upon whom we can feast and be satisfied. The Lord is showing us that what matters, what really matters is communion with him. What is there in your life that's taking you away from this stress on communion with God, communion with Christ? The text is about the unique authority of Jesus. Who is this that can still winds and waves, that can command demons, that can raise the dead? Who is this that can multiply the loaves and fish and feed the hungry? A greater than Moses, a greater than Elisha, one who gives rest in the wilderness, the maker of the new covenant in his blood, God incarnate, the one who calls us to his table in the midst of our enemies. And he is also the one who anticipates the feast to which every believer here is going. A number of years ago, I read something to you from the Boston Globe. It was 1990. It came to mind as I was thinking about this text. It was um, an account of a wedding banquet, kind of. And uh, I couldn't help but think of it as I thought about this feeding of the 5,000 pointing to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast that is anticipated here in this text. Let me read this to you. Accompanied by her fiancé, A woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. After leaving a check for half that amount as down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You have two options. To forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry. Really, I am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. (laughs) And sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. 
Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. I think they were wise to accept the invitation, don't you? The least likely to enjoy such a feast came. Let me tell you, as I now fellowship with my Lord Jesus Christ and come to the feast that is prepared, the table spread for me in the midst of my enemies, my cup overflows, and I am the least likely to be there. A sinner, a sinner, a sinner, saved by grace. Drawn to the feast by sovereign grace. You don't clean yourself up to come to his feast. You come just as you are. And if you are a wise person by the grace of God, you will come in faith to the one who will throw this feast in the consummation of the age when he returns. In Proverbs 9.5 we read, and here wisdom is the language. Wisdom calls us using the language of a feast. Come, eat my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. I say it to you so often. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And God's people said,